Welcome to a modern nonprofit podcast powered by the charity CFO, your compass for creative solutions and running your nonprofit. I'm Tasha Anderson, your host and guide through this nonprofit maze. From fundraising to volunteer management, we've got your back. Join us each episode for fresh game-changing strategies that can make a real impact. Hey friends, welcome back again to a Modern Nonprofit Podcast. I'm Tasha Anderson, I'm your host, but today we're switching things up a little bit. Some of you all may or may not know, it's not just me over here at the Charity CFO. I have my right-hand person and sidekick, Tim Hudson. Tim is a partner here at the Charity CFO. We divide and conquer the leadership of our firm, uh, the Charity CFO, and work with hundreds of nonprofits every single month. Um, Maybe it's several hundred, if not thousands over the years, 10 that we've worked together. And some of you all may not know, we actually have clients all over the country. While we're headquartered here in St. Louis, we work with hundreds of nonprofits all over the country, throughout the United States, from coast to coast, with a variety of different missions, from you know anything you name it, to religious organizations, to basic needs, to you know family, children, social service agencies, some smaller organizations, some larger organizations. And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to pull in Tim that works very closely with many, many of these organizations and just have a conversation about what are the hottest trends, what are the biggest issues that our clients are facing. And I'm certain that if our clients are facing them, you're probably facing them too. And maybe share some observations or things that we've seen work or not work for them. Um, and maybe it's, you know, we don't have the answer, we're just validating <laughs> the struggle that you all are dealing with. So I have five on my list of five burning things on my list that Tim and I are going to hopefully tackle if we have enough time today. Um, but we hope they're going to do this each quarter and just update you all, uh, our listeners, to hear a little bit more about what we're seeing on our end and what we find has been working for some of our clients. So Tim, first and foremost, I know you're a really busy guy. Thanks for taking time out of your day to share with all of our listeners um, some of the things that you've been learning. I know, Tim, you've been talking with lots of our clients lately. Uh, probably half of your week is spent each week talking to clients and just hearing what's working, what's not working with them. So um, your first podcast too. So welcome. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited to be part of this. I, uh, I've i been working at the Charity CFO very closely with Tasha since the summer of 2018. So I guess that is five years, a little, little yeah. over five years, wildly enough. Um, we've been business partners officially for about three years uh, mm-hmm. and it's been a fun ride. So Tasha and I work very closely together professionally, uh, but I've never had the chance to do the podcast. So this is going to be fun. Yeah. And Tim, one time we had a conversation about just the sheer volume and repetition and exposure that we've had with nonprofits over the years that I said right now, we actively work with well over 200 clients every single month, but that compounded over, you know, the seven years in our history, or at least five years uh, with your time specifically working with our clients. I mean, the sheer volume of cases that we've seen in terms of, you know, specifically accounting, financial management, since that's mostly in our wheelhouse, but uh, certainly having all of the conversations about fundraising and grant management and board engagement and, and hiring and firing and succession planning and all of the things that our clients are dealing with all of the time. It's just the sheer volume is quite impressive uh, that I think that we've um, we've experienced over the years. So even though we tend to focus most of our service on accounting and whatnot, we certainly have had lots of conversations that are not necessarily accounting related. So while yeah. I and I'm I think that's oh, go ahead. I think that's kind of just a shameless plug, but I think that's a real advantage of of our model in offering outsourced accounting services to our clients and to nonprofits is we can bring that uh, that expertise to the table and share you know our experience in working with other nonprofits on the operational side. Like, hey, this is what we're seeing other clients do, and this is what seems to be working and what seems to not be working. And hopefully we can share some of that insight today. 
Yeah. So let's just dive right into the first thing that we've seen. This is a little bit of a financial spin, certainly, but I think it impacts every area of the organization. There were substantially all of our clients um, received some element of COVID related funding or that funding or the you know, economic stimulus or whatever you want to call it, uh, impacted so many of our clients. And that has been uh, a ride that we've been able to be on for the last couple of years. However, Tim, this is drying up for some of our clients. And I know that you've had some conversations about how to start creating budgets post COVID funding related, um, you know, era as we're moving into that space. And I know that's an issue that certainly a lot of our clients are facing with. And I know you've certainly had conversations about what that's going to mean for, for the nonprofits we work with going forward. Yeah, so uh, what I tend to see with this is I, I we have clients that seem to fall into two basic camps. So you've got some organizations that are very cash flush because of mm -hmm. all of this COVID funding. So for example, a lot of organizations took advantage of the ERTC, the PPP, maybe mm -hmm. some ARPA funding through federal grants, and they've got higher cash reserves than they've ever had as a result of those short-term funding opportunities. So they've got more cash than they know what to do with. But they're mm -hmm. looking on the horizon and they're seeing that cat that cash flow is going to dry up. I mean, I've got what I've got in my bank account, but I don't have those same funding opportunities available to me in the future. So how right. do I how do I take what we've got and and how can we operate sustainably into the future? And then we've got some clients that that extra cash flow has already dried up, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Right? Situation. There's no reserves. Yeah. Yeah, like they may have gotten the PPP, they may have gotten here, they may have gotten all of those those opportunities. But they've been using that that extra funding to balance their budget for the last mm. three years. And so Operation. they haven't really built up a reserve. They've just been burning that cash uh, to continue to operate. And they're looking at a new budget for a new fiscal year where they can't balance their budget anymore because yeah. Yeah. the funding that they've been used to is no longer available to them. So obviously, if you're in the first category, you're in a lot better position. But... Mm -hmm. What I've encouraged all of our clients and what I'll say now is don't fall into complacency just because your cash reserves are higher than ever. You need to think, come up with a plan before that cash bleeds down. And mm -hmm. you need to come up with a plan. What I recommend is, depending on how much cash reserve you have, come up with a two to three year plan to be able to balance your budget long term. So mm -hmm. maybe you can accept. So like I've, I've got a client that's got, um, they just received something like 1.8 million in ERTC funding. And their cash reserves are something like eight eight months of uh, they've got something like eight months of cash in on reserve right now, so way more cash than they need. They're accepting that this upcoming fiscal year they're going to show a net loss of like two hundred thousand dollars because they don't have all the pieces in place to be able to balance their budget mm -hmm. and, and broaden their their funder base this year. But they're okay with that because by the end of the year they'll still have something like six five to six months of cash on hand, which is okay. They're still in a good spot. Mm -hmm. They know though that they've got to be working in the next year or two to get them in, in place to eventually get to a balanced budget before mm -hmm. that cash reserve bleeds dry. Those organizations yeah. that are in the second category, they've got to, they're in emergency mode. You've got yeah. to figure out how to balance your budget. You've got to figure out how to ideally even grow your cash reserves um, to a place of sustainability. And so there's not much luxury of time in those situations. You've got to act. So a couple of things that I've been recommending our clients. Number one, you've got to manage your capital. You've got to understand what your balance sheet looks like. So I recommend you maintain three to six months of cash reserves on hand mm -hmm. 
at any given time. So mm -hmm. how do you measure that? You just take your average monthly expenses. So just look at your annual budget for expenses, Total budget. divide that mm -hmm. by 12. Yep. And, and um, divide, so whatever your average monthly expenses are, expenses are, divide that out of your cash on hand. So easy example, if you're spending $50,000 a month on average, and you have $150,000 in the bank, you've got three, three months, months of cash on hand. Yeah. So you need to know that number for your organization immediately. You need to have that number memorized and you'd be looking at it every month. So typically a lot of organizations like, do I do three months or do six months? What's that range? I say, if you've got a lot of diversity in your funding streams, if you're getting money from some federal grants some state grants, a lot of individual mm -hmm. donors, an event, mm -hmm. whatever, you could probably afford to be on the lower end of that. You mm -hmm. could probably handle three months of cash on hand and be just fine. Because the idea is if one grant dries up or one, you know, one of your big donors goes away, you're not destitute. You've got plenty of other funding streams mm -hmm. bringing cash flow in. And so you don't need a long cash target or long, large cash reserve. Mm -hmm. If you're reliant on like two or three major grants or you, you know, the ma majority of your funding comes from one or two sources, you really should yeah. be a, 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 trying to get closer to six months. Yeah. So that's why we say a range. So figure out where you land on that. If you're less than six, than three months of cash reserves, like I said, you're in emergency mode. You've got to figure out how to balance your budget this year. You've got to figure mm -hmm. out you're, you're looking at cutting expenses and uh, figuring out how to maximize your existing funding streams, figuring out how to do more with less <laughs> in terms of grant mm -hmm. writing and, and those mm -hmm. sorts of efforts. If you're within that three to six months, you really just need to figure out how to keep that, maintain the that. State. So mm -hmm. balance your budget such that you can kind of maintain the mm -hmm. status quo. If you're above that, so again, a lot of organizations that have tons of cash, they don't even really know what to do with, you need to be thinking about what to do with that cash. So mm -hmm. whether it's set up a quasi-endowment, invest some of that money, set up a board-designated fund where that money is set aside for specific purposes, maybe a capital campaign, maybe, maybe you want to create a investment um, quasi-endowment or, or, or debt or designated endowment such that the earnings, the interest and the dividends and the gains can create some operating cushion. Maybe you can, you know, if you have a million dollars that you can invest, you might be able to invest that and earn $80,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And that can actually help you balance your budget every year. So you spend 80 grand a year from your investments. You never really eat into the principle of your investment but you're able to use those earnings to cover some of your operating deficit every year. So to me, it all comes back to cash. It comes back to evaluating your balance sheet to see what you have. And you've mm -hmm. got to make more draconian, more extreme decisions, unfortunately, when you're on the lower end of your cash reserve. Um, yeah. And so anyway, that's what I got. Well, and I think you bring up a good point too, that if you are in a situation where you've been riding on this COVID-related funding for a few years now, and you've grown, because frankly, we know a few things happen. Inflation has continued to go up pretty significantly. So the cost of doing business has gone, gone up significantly. Likely you've grown your programs because demand for those services continue to go up, right? So you've added infrastructure, you've added you know, the additional cost of doing business, you've maybe not quite factored in when some of these reserves are going to go away or when some of this funding is going to go away. So if you don't know what your typical operating budget is now, start having those conversations with your accountant to see where is that deficit now and have conversations about how you're going to fill that gap. And I think it's, it's to your point. So certainly evaluate cash. Absolutely. 
But if you're not really sure where your starting point is going to be from that budget gap uh, going into this year, that's certainly a conversation you should be having. And I know for a lot of our December year ends, we're already starting to have budget conversations with them and starting to kind of map out what is that new uh as we're maybe going back to some sense of normalcy, what does that new normal budget look like now that we've had all of these wild, uh, you know, uh, funding opportunities come through that we know aren't going to be repeated. And like I said, it's been several years now. So we've grown, the cost of doing business has gone up. So things are going to look a lot different. And when you kind of peel away those layers of funding and really get to your core uh, funding sources, that might look a lot different. So evaluating those two things. I always say revenues, expenses, budgets, all that is good. Um, cash is king. I completely echo everything that Tim said. You can't run a business without cash flow. Uh, and you um, certainly need to know where you're starting from. So know how much cash you should be having. And I would also add, that's not on your best day before payroll hits, right? Yeah. <laughs> the three months of cash yeah. maybe should be at the end of the month once all of your expenses yeah. are made. Uh, those payments have been made and all of your new funding hasn't come. If you're, you know, three months of cash on your best day when all your funding is hit and no expenses have been made, that doesn't count, y'all. That doesn't count. So, yeah. so that's, I know, a huge topic uh, that people are talking about, kind of evaluating what does the new normal look like. Um, and I want to move on because we have a few other things, but I do want to highlight um, something else. Uh, going back to the budgeting, going back to the spend down of reserves, if you are fortunate to be one of those organizations that are um, having uh, this big, you know, operating reserve now more money than what you actually need, and you're figuring out how do you spend that down, I do know, that's a conversation to have at the board level of what, uh, what investments are we willing to make, maybe it's not an infrastructure, maybe it's not an adding people, maybe it's um, capital improvements for a building, maybe it's additional professional development for our training, maybe it's one time bonuses to our staff or something, who knows, right? Um, having those conversations with the board on what level of comfortability you're willing to spend down. Um, now, I don't want to get too much into the technical accounting speak, but typically if you want to spend down money in your savings account, it's just like in your personal bank account. Um, the only way to spend down your bank account is to spend more money than you bring in. So that's a weird culture shift for a lot of boards to say, what do you mean you want to be at a $200,000 deficit this year? Um, but then on one hand, it's like, y'all are having too much money in your bank, but you can't give me a balance or a budget that's anything but balanced. Well, that's in conflict. So I know that a lot of nonprofits are trying to have that conversation and educate their finance committee and board on, on what that needs to look like. Um, so switching gears from, from revenue, um, another thing that I've seen a lot about, and frankly, while we're also in this business too, so while we're not technically a nonprofit, we work exclusively with nonprofits. Uh, we hire similar talent that nonprofits would be looking for. Uh, and I've seen this happen a lot um, as it relates to staff turnover and the scarcity of talented recruits. So there's a huge issue with a talent shortage. We all know that. That's also been going on for years and years. The cost of hiring skilled, talented people to do specialized work has skyrocketed Tim and I'd be the first one to talk about that because we own a business that hires accountants and some of you all may know finding an accountant is like a needle in a haystack and, and finding a really good one is is uh very costly but while I don't want to talk too much about necessarily the accounting recruit side but what I've seen interestingly and Tim I'm curious to know from your perspective we've seen situations where people have not been able to leverage all of their contracts that they've actually received because they simply can't yeah. find the people to offer up the services to the community for which now they're missing out on funding opportunities. And I don't have to tell you all this, but what that means for our clients, as well as anybody listening, I'm sure, if you do not fully utilize those contracts, then oftentimes those, if it's a government agency, typically are going to redeploy those resources to an organization that has uh, proven their capability to do so. So recruiting has been a big challenge, I think, for every business. Nonprofit is no small exception. 
But I want to share with you all an observation that I came across a couple times now in clients that we've worked with or organizations that I've been involved in on a volunteer basis. And I'll tell you this. Um, I thought I would share a little bit about how we tackle uh, recruiting and a little bit of how I've seen that be very different than how I've seen some of these nonprofit partners. So I don't have to tell this to anyone that's been in the nonprofit space for more than, I don't know, three hours, that nonprofit <laughs> folks, they wear a lot of hats, a lot of hats. And one of the things that I learned a long time ago, and that has, I think, contributed to the success that we've had as a firm and to grow, is that we put very specific and intentional energy on recruiting. And our recruiters, they only do recruiting. Okay, they don't do anything else. And I'll give you an example, the people that I've worked with in the nonprofit space recently that have had this issue we can't build out our programs. We can't earn more revenue because we don't have people to do it. And I'm not going to sit here and be naive and act like there's not a talent shortage. There absolutely is. But one of the things that I've noticed is that the people that are responsible for recruiting, they do that work in addition to five other jobs. Okay. I have one organization I've worked with that their HR person does HR, which you could say, well, isn't that part of recruiting? Recruiting? We, we can have a whole separate podcast about why I don't think necessarily HR is the same as recruiting and vice versa. However, they have all of the HRs, all the processes, all the policies, you know, all of the new hire orientation and all of the payroll processing, the benefit management and all of the things that go along with that. And they also need to do recruiting, right? They have tons and tons of open positions. As if that wasn't a big enough job, I've seen where they're also in charge of like compliance for grant management and, you know, administrative, like, office clerical support and all of these different jobs. And what happens is that they recruiting becomes a very small part of their energy, their effort and attention. And it shows up in the numbers. It shows up in the open positions. Right. And I've seen this also where you'll have, you know, a, a director of, um, you know, administration or something like that. And they're responsible for all of the things from paying the bills to, you know, putting on special events to recruiting and all of these sorts of things. And, um, and I know that's a reality for so many of us, but where it shifted for us and how we've handled our kind of recruiting, we created a full-time like recruiting position and their job is only uh, to do recruiting. And when they're able to have focused energy on just recruiting, it's amazing how much further and faster we can get, even in spite of a talent market, because we're operating as in a very tight um, talent market as well. And I know you might say, Tasha, that's, that's great. That's lovely. Uh, good for you. You can afford a full-time person. But I really just challenge that recruiting becomes a bigger portion of the pie that they're dealing with every day and a bigger focus, energy and, and attention and try, really, really try to keep some of those non-critical talent management, talent acquisition responsibilities off of their plate. Stop throwing IT, stop throwing, you know, marketing, stop throwing compliance for your contracts, you know, <laughs> on an HR person's responsibilities, because the job itself is very big, uh, especially in the in the market that we're working with. So that continues to be an issue. Uh, we can go on and say, but nothing you all haven't already read about turnover and retention being a problem because the inability to compete with benefits and pay and remote work and those sort of things have, have continued being an issue. And I know, Tim, um, I was uh, um, talking to a leader of a nonprofit um, just last week that said he's on his fifth accounting director in less than 10 years, right? Yeah. And so we hear that a lot of turnover as it relates to accountants, but we've seen a lot of turnover in senior leadership, right? Tim, I know you've been yeah. introduced to new leadership. Uh, so senior leadership is getting burnout. Skilled talent is harder and harder to afford. Um, and even, you know, perhaps some of our, the bulk of our, our, our talent, right, which might be in some cases teachers or social workers or, you know, programmatic staff, whatever your program might be, 
it's really um, difficult to find the, the, the uh, prospective employees, but especially difficult when you just don't have the space internally to focus the energy and effort into um, actually doing the recruiting. So I know that's a big yeah. issue for, for many of our clients. Yeah, I think um, probably two things that really need to be looked at, especially if, you're, if your organization is facing significant turnover. Number one, sort of if evaluating from the ground up, almost just looking at every element of your organization, every element of your program, all of the responsibilities for these roles that are that are experiencing high turnover and rethinking what what do absolutely must we do? What can we cut? What I, mm -hmm. I know nonprofits hate to hear this and I understand why, but it's very common in this sector that we spread ourselves too thin. We, we mm -hmm. chase after different funding opportunities and you know, we end up with seven different programs or seven, seven different initiatives or mm -hmm. projects or whatever. And we just don't have the staff or the bandwidth to manage those programs effectively. And mm -hmm. you've got to be really honest with yourself about what are uh, the core programs that really represent our mission and our, you know, um, commitment to this community or to this, to, to this area. And, how can I focus all of my efforts on those? And sometimes that means I've got to cut programs that are more ancillary to that or that are more distractions or that are burning mm -hmm. out my team. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of nonprofits are having to uh, embrace the fact that uh, the, the cost of, of acquiring and retaining talent is going to continue to go up. The ability to acquire and retain talent is going to continue to go up. We're facing an aging demographic across the United States. More mm -hmm. and more people are entering retirement age. I believe 2022 is the year on average where baby boomers are typically retiring. So we're still seeing a wave of that coming. And um, Gen, Gen Z is our smallest, um, uh, what do you call it? Smallest um, age group uh, since I think like World War II. <laughs> so since like mm -hmm. the silent generation. So we're, we're seeing a shrinking of the labor market and that's not going to change. And so some mm -hmm. to some extent, Nonprofits have to understand that maybe they are going to have to downsize a little bit. Maybe some of these open positions really realistically cannot be filled. And mm -hmm. we're going to invest our resources into paying our current people more mm -hmm. uh, and, and keeping their workload as manageable as possible by being really intentional about what we take on and what we don't take on. So I think that's one component. I think another component is, um, is, uh, uh, is essentially just evaluating um uh, what your what what compensation is actually appropriate for the team the team members you've got and I know nonprofits mm -hmm. typically don't have the luxury of just writing a blank check and paying their mm -hmm. people whatever the market will bear but you also have to accept that uh, if you don't if you're not proactive in giving your people raises and paying you know paying what the labor market would suggest they should be paid you're going to lose those people over time so you've got to you've mm -hmm. got to evaluate those costs and benefits there. Yeah, and that's that's the hardest part of you know I, I typically see somewhere between like sixty to eighty percent of someone a nonprofit's budget is going to be tied up in personnel related costs, right? And so baking in those raises or those increases in staffing, even if it's a small three to five percent, if that's eighty percent of your budget or even sixty percent of your budget, that is a a small percentage that has a huge impact on your budget. And so I think yeah. that's something that taking into consideration when you go into each year, knowing that at some point we need to be increasing those, um, you know, increasing revenue by at least that much uh, year over year, 
in order to at least cover staffing, um, staffing costs, especially, um, I mean, that was, that was the norm three to 5% back when it was under normal circumstances. And now with inflation, when was it upwards of like 8% or something like that? Eight and yeah. a half, something. Um, and a lot of team members years. see it as good, bad, or otherwise. I'm not making a, I'm not stating my opinion on this, but a lot of people are finding a 3% raise to feel like more of a slap in the face than anything, uh, mm-hmm. just because, you know, uh, we're looking at eight, nine percent inflation here in the United States, and a lot of people are saying, "Look, my my bills have gone up by more than that," and you're telling me mm-hmm. this is my my raise for the next twelve months. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to you've got to uh, evaluate that. You know, and you bring up a good point earlier, Tim, and I know you and I have had many conversations internally about our own business, about what point of growth is reasonable if we can't find the right talent to do the services. And one of the things that I've seen over the years, and this isn't a new phenomenon, but what I've seen over the years, and I'm sure this is still happening all the time, that we get an opportunity to get additional um, program expansion, right? Where we're able to get a grant to cover, you know, expansion in one of our programs. And I've seen this so many times where a nonprofit will think, okay, great, more money is more money and more money is a good thing, right? However, when you really think about it critically, they might get a grant. For example, I, I had a, a client get a grant. It was, I don't know, like $207,000. The no small change, right? Big, big, big dollars we're talking about. And when I looked at it closely, it's like, okay, this was not something you were doing before. So this is now a new initiative, which might make sense, you know, if it's in line with your mission or what have you, but it's not been part of your fundraising needs before. It's not something that you had already agreed to in the past. It's a new initiative. And this grant, while it seems like 200,000 is great, but the actual cost of running the program is not like $240,000. So by accepting this expansion gift, funding, whatever you want to call it, you've now put yourself further in the hole by $40,000. And you have not demonstrated an ability to fundraise to keep up with this new expansion of government contracts. So if you're not having con- uh, conversations with your accountant to really understand, is this a good deal? And are we willing to do this work if we're not able to get full funding? And if we throw our hat into funding and we only get partial funding, are we still willing to move forward? And do we have a plan to make up the deficit? And frankly, with like the shrinking philanthropic, you know, gifts that are being made or the squeeze on some of these government contracts we're having, the answer is no, you can't make up that deficit. And so think long and hard about whether growth is actually a good thing, because not only have you just decreased, or I'm sorry, widen your fundraising gap, you just now come just add it on to that deficit you're already operating in. But now likely with that expansion, you have to find talent when you might already have open positions you can't fill. And you're further straining your fundraising department, you're further straining your administrative department. And I know, look, no, no judgment. No, uh, <laughs> you have all of our sympathy because we've had hard conversations ourselves while we have prospective clients reaching out. Hey, we want to do this work. We want to do this work. We're like, no, I, unfortunately, we could only help so many people at one time because it's not worth us burning out our team. It's not worth us running in a state of just constant frantic, you know, space just to be able to recruit the people that we know are not going to be completely successful. And even if we do recruit them, maybe they're not going to be the right recruits and they're not going to work long term anyway for us. So um, kind of being really intentional about that, having those hard conversations about when it makes sense and when it doesn't. And sometimes it seems to make sense from a surface level, but then when you dig a few layers deeper, you realize uh, this is actually not such a good deal. So I thought I would throw that in there. It's all interrelated. Yeah, great point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So next on our list of conversations, and I'll say this from my own personal experience because I've served on board. Uh, we work with lots and lots of boards 
um, board engagement and doesn't unsure how to engage board members. Uh, I'm not a board engagement expert. Uh, we're just here to kind of show our experiences. You know, I would say, Tim, there's a whole spectrum of uh, board engagement uh, levels <laughs> from what board? We've never met them. Uh, not sure if they're really involved or participating or if you even if you have a board um, all the way to is this a board or is this senior leadership? Because they seem to really be overstepping their boundaries here. And we see the whole spectrum of boards and board engagement. And um, I think that's an ongoing issue for how do you deal with those that are perhaps overly engaged and excitable about what you're trying to do and how to redefine expectations and, and get everybody into the right seat. Uh, and then also for those board members that did sign on and wanted to be part of your cause, they just don't seem to be showing up to the meetings or they're not living up to their end of the expectations or whatever it might be. But Tim, I'm sure you've had many conversations or yeah. observations with the clients that we've worked with and what that looks like for them. Yeah, well, I think the first step is recognizing that in order for you to be successful as an executive director, a CEO, a, a senior leader in a nonprofit, you have to have a, a rock solid board that you can depend on, but that also has some level of trust and, and empowers the, the leaders on the ground, on site, in the organization to do what they need to do. And so to Tata's point, it really is a balancing act. You need you need board members that are engaged, that are showing up to meetings, that are asking insightful questions, that are offering good support, frankly, that are leveraging their networks uh, to, to advocate for and to support the organization. Like board members should be part of fundraising. They should be part of helping uh, the organization, um, you know, bring in volunteers or bring in, bring in fundraising dollars. But you don't need it. You, you do, do not need a board or don't want a board <laughs> that is going to be you know the helicopter board that's going to mm -hmm. it's going to be looking over your shoulder at every turn you make it's it, it's going to micromanage you know every every decision you make or every time you give someone a raise or something like that so you've got to find you've got to be able to strike that balance how do you shape a board to get you to that balance that is a that's a very tricky question i'm not going to pretend like i have all the answers there uh, but I think the first step is recognizing where you're at on that spectrum and where there may be a deficiency, whether you're on one extreme or the other, and recognizing the fact that you do need a board that you can depend on. Uh, so mm -hmm. to be honest, more and more these days, I see boards that are more on the absentee side of things, right? Like boards that are not engaged, they're not showing up to meetings. I work with lots of organizations that they can't even get quorum for, you know, I've, I've got mm -hmm. clients that can't even get their budget approved because Every time they people reschedule, not, not, not enough people aren't showing up. I mean, that's embarrassing. That's that's really, it, it makes, mm -hmm. it cripples an organization's ability to, to operate if you, if you don't have a board that's, that's, that's going to work with you. So uh, in those situations, I typically recommend that you find one or two board members that you can actually depend on and get them in your corner. Ideally, mm -hmm. it's like your board chair or your board treasurer or someone that's sort of like in a chair position within the organization that kind of commands some respect amongst the other board members to say, look, I need more support. I need more. This is, you know, mm -hmm. this is a challenge for me and get them kind of in your corner, get, get them uh, to kind of see what you're seeing and to be an advocate um, for, you know, where that board needs to be heading mm -hmm. within those meetings. Cause it's really tricky. If you're an executive in a nonprofit to hold your board accountable when 
they are also kind of your accountability structure, right? You kind of report yeah. to the board and for you to be in a position where you're calling a board member out or when you're, you know, you're trying to hold them accountable, you should, there are times where you need to do that. And that's just part of the job. Mm -hmm. uh, but I recognize that's a very tricky political <laughs> endeavor. And so getting mm -hmm. a couple people from the board in your corner and allowing them to kind of be the bad guy, so to speak, mm -hmm. I think that helps. Um, the other thing is looking at your bylaws and mm -hmm. evaluating you know, what is the process for board recruitment? What is the, do you have term limits for your board members? Do you have mm -hmm. some sort of requirement that board members raise a certain dollar amount of money every year or that they attend a certain number of meetings every year? A lot of times what I find is no one's paying attention to the bylaws, but there actually are rules in place that allow you to eject board members that are not achieving certain milestones or not whatever. And mm -hmm. if you actually enforce those policies, you'd be able to, uh, to, to get rid of some of the bad actors and, and, and get a, get a board that's in, that's, um, that's attentive. So look at that. If you don't have good bylaws that really enforce those kinds of expectations, mm -hmm. then consider whether you need to revise those bylaws and, yeah. uh, you know, and that's where you've got to be an advocate and explain to your board why, um, certain levels of engagement are necessary and why you mm -hmm. need more from your board. Um, and the other thing I would say is when it comes to board recruiting, look in, don't be afraid to look in the non-traditional faces, right? I think a lot of, we always joke internally, this is kind of terrible, but boards are just made up of so many attorneys. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. they're, they're overrepresented by attorneys or people that are, you know, uh, small business owners or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's always good to have board members that have some like business acumen and they can provide good insight. But um, we have a lot of clients that have had a lot of success recruiting board members from um, even like more members of the community, people that have, that may have been, um, part of uh, maybe participants in one of your programs years back mm -hmm, and actually like mm -hmm. a beneficiary of one of your programs, mm -hmm. um, getting board members of, you know, um, family members of, of people that have, you know, participants in your programs or even, mm -hmm. um, board members from some of your donor connections, like mm -hmm. reaching more out into the community that you're trying to serve and getting representation from that community on your board. I recognize that requires sometimes more effort to find those people and to convince mm -hmm. those people to, to come on board, but often that's time well spent and, and those folks will end up being more engaged because that's a, you know, you're looking for people that maybe haven't served on a book board before, or maybe have never really had an opportunity like that. They're gonna take that opportunity seriously versus, you know, an attorney that serves on seven different boards and, you know, just maybe he shows up to the meeting, maybe he does that, but he's got a, a lot going on. So anyway, that's, those are some thoughts I've got on that. I'll add a few more to board engagement. Um, one thing that I've noticed, so many clients that we've worked with or boards that I've been involved in, they're not really clear about the roles and responsibilities and what are the expectations essentially of the job, um, whether it's by officer or even by committee. Uh, and then sometimes you have committees, for example, we see a lot of finance committee members that aren't necessarily on the board. So is it really clear in a job description, like what their expectations are? What is the expectation for attendance of meetings? What is the expectation that they do? And I think some people, um, I don't think anybody goes into the board situation thinking, you know, I'm just going to phone this in. I'm not really that all involved. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm, I'm not really interested in adding any value. No one really goes into the relationship thinking that way. But I think the problem is that people that have never served on a board, uh, or they don't have a whole lot of experience um, in board engagement or building out boards or committees, 
they just simply don't know what they could be doing, right? And I think so many board members, um, and I see this especially, I'll, I'll give finance committees because that's often who we who we interact with. Uh, they kind of go through the motions. Okay, I read the financial report. I'm asking a few questions. I'll ask a few questions at the end of the year uh, on the audit and things like that. And that's actually a pretty good finance committee. Um, but where we can take it a step further is really them understanding what are they responsible for. So it could be policy creation and development. It could be reviewing internal controls, understanding that, understanding at a high level what the compliance requirements of the organization are and are they living into those expectations, right? And a really great starting point for anybody that's struggling with, I need somebody to start solving some problems for my organization. I need my committees or my board to be um, more of a working board or to help me knock a few things off my to-do list. Start with some quality standards that you might see from the Better Business Bureau or from Charity Navigator, or if you're marking a couple things, no, that should be yes on your 990. You know, do I have a conflict of interest policy or do I have a great way of making sure that that stays current? Um, you know, also the United Way here in St. Louis has a great uh, quality standards checklist um, that includes board governance, that includes basically every major operating function of a nonprofit. One of those includes finance. You know, are there operating reserve policies? Are there sorts of things that you don't have as an organization that your committee could actually and should actually be doing? So if you're not giving them tasks, or assignments or simply asking them to do these things, they're going to just keep going through the motions, feel a little, you know, bored and, and maybe it's a bit mundane and, and and start to get a little disengaged. So um, I don't expect everybody to know what all of these things are and starting from scratch. So don't recreate the wheel, go and um, check out some of these um, kind of best practices or, or quality standards, if you will. And, um, use that as a starting point. Another great starting point, if you do get an audit or a review or any sort of year-end um, stamp of approval from an independent CPA firm, typically uh, you could ask them, you know, what are recommendations that you might have in terms of how we can improve our best practices or internal controls or anything like that. Uh, and that could be a starting point for uh, your finance committee to um, get to work. And not just the finance committee, any committee uh, could use that as a starting point to get to work um, and really get them, you know, more involved and engaged um, in the work that they're doing. That's not necessarily policing every uh, budget <laughs> line item that you're spending. And the last thing I'll leave with that with, with in terms of board engagement, while I think a lot of leaders of nonprofits wish their board was more engaged and I think maybe they reach out and they run, uh, I think things past a board maybe falls more into like the day-to-day -day operation. Um, try to strike that balance between leveraging your board for oversight and governance and not running to them for every operational issue. Um, and I know I, I notice this oftentimes with smaller organizations that should I have to have this budget line item? You know, I had a, a conversation with a client of mine and she's like, you know, um, I would like to go give those raises to the staff. That, by the way, were already approved by the board, already ran through the finance committee, already included in the budget. And the conversation was, should I get permission from the board? to give raises to the staff. And frankly, I said, no, like, it's not like you're hiding anything. It's already in the budget. It's already like, they've already vetted it. They know what's expected. If anything, they probably assumed you already gave the raises, but we were kind of waiting for a few things uh, to, to land, you know, from a finance perspective uh, in terms of funding. And I said, no, I mean, if you make it a habit to keep running back to your board for every little operational decision, then they start to think that that's their role. And then before you know it, you're yeah. kind of, 
it's a little bit of a gray area who's actually running the organization and then it's a slippery slope. And not that I'm all for transparency and that's why you have a, a, a lengthy budget discussion. You tell them exactly what you're going to do. And as long as you're operating within that kind of agreed upon plan, I just really caution uh, leaders of nonprofits to kind of be running to the board for, for every little thing. So that's where I think the pendulum can swing from like completely disengaged to completely overly engaged. <laughs> and how do well, we find somewhere in the middle? Yeah. Sometimes it's the worst of both worlds where you've got boards that are micromanaging the small stuff, but not paying any attention to the big picture and the strategy and the fact that you might be posting, you know, significant losses every year or your program is unsustainable. You know, some, some of those bigger problems that boards should be part of, they're ignoring uh, just in service of the day to day, you know, operational micromanaging type oversight. So be careful of that. And, and one of the things you brought up, Tasha, maybe think, and I think it's a great point like you said, really find ways to best utilize your board. I This sounds very basic. This is like sort of communication 101, but write down what you need from your board. Really define mm -hmm. what the expectations are for your board members and what you are looking for from your board, and what you need from them and get them to buy into that. Like, hey, this is a list of the things that I'm leaning on you for and that I believe that um, this organization needs from you as board members. And if they don't agree with that list, that's a collaborative process. Let's define that better. Let's get, let's nail this down. But mm -hmm. I think, I do think a lot of times frustration between, between executives and board members really just stems from a lack of clarity or a lack of definition to what those mm -hmm. roles should be. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and I find you, <laughs> not one of Tasha's peeves where I, I just remember sitting <laughs> in a conversation, this has probably happened to me multiple times, but one that I could think about that we were just, um, in a board meeting one time, it, it was a, um, it was a preschool and there was these family events, you know, where they do like tea with mom for mother's day or donuts with dad or whatever. These, I don't know, less than a thousand dollars, um, for the whole year. And we were just spending 20 minutes of the hour long board meeting talking about whether we should cut back on this thousand dollar line item expense when there was this glaring issue of the fundraising goal was completely behind. And like, you know, as you said, we tend to fo hyper-focus on some of the details. We don't talk about some of the bigger issues. And I know one of the things that Tim and I do, um, you know, as we run our business is to always, you know, every week we have a weekly meeting with our key staff or senior leadership. And then also every quarter we reevaluate what are the biggest company issues that need to be made crystal clear to all of our senior leadership, all of our middle management, all of our staff, right? Everybody from top to bottom and, and all the way across the departments um, that everybody knows exactly what these issues are. And I think if nonprofits were really able or willing to highlight what really are the biggest issues that are keeping that executive director up at night um, and lifting that up to the board and revisiting that every meeting. And maybe some of these things have fallen off because we saw the problem, but really if, if we're not talking about these major issues and we're getting in the weeds and talking about a donut for dad line item, like something's wrong here. Come on. Yeah. What, are, <laughs> what are we really avoiding the conversation? And that requires a great deal of vulnerability and frankly puts the, the leader of that nonprofit on the hot spot of being accountable yeah. for some of those bigger issues and opening up for conversations. And believe me, as someone that is a founder of, of this company and lifting that up in a in conversation is sometimes not easy to do. Um, but I think it keeps that conversation high level. And frankly, no one wants to have conversations about the budget for donuts, dad, like they want to talk about how do we really make sure this organization is sustainable. That's why they got involved. That's what's going to keep them involved. So just a little tip yeah. that we've done um, to really make sure that the communication to your point, Tim, is disseminated down to all the people that need to be 
Um, and everybody's on the same page about what issues we're actually really trying to tackle here. So, so I know we're already at like 45 minutes. And what do you think we'll do one quick one? Um, sure. Let's talk a little bit about um, finding auditors. This is the bane of existence. Uh, I was, you know, like I said, talking to another leader of a nonprofit um, the other day, and he was talking that this was the person that, you know, had a, several different CFOs and, um, you know, short period of time, and they have a little bit of embezzlement issues. And then they had, um, you know, some auditor turnover and, and unwilling to find an auditor. And we asked, you know, what is the biggest issue in your business right now? He said, managing the financial side of my business, frankly, yeah. <laughs> um, I, makes you wonder if that conversation is being had at the board level. I don't know. But anyway, finding auditors, I hear this all the time, Tim, I know you live and breathe this every day is a yeah. challenge. Well, it's become it's become progressively more challenging since COVID. Um, all of those staffing issues we talked about in our in our second point earlier yep. in the podcast, the uh, the accounting industry is facing that times ten. I mean, it is uh, the accounting industry is facing an even more backwards um, mm -hmm. labor market right now, where we've got so many people entering retirement age. The labor market, the labor supply of accountants is shrinking in the United States very rapidly. And mm -hmm. the cost of accounting um, has just skyrocketed in conjunction with that. And mm -hmm. so a lot of firms are having to make some tough decisions. And a lot mm -hmm. of what we're seeing is auditors that are dropping clients or being really, really picky about new clients that they want to take on. And unfortunately, this has been, I think, disproportionately to the detriment of smaller nonprofit organizations, mm -hmm. which happens mm -hmm. to be our client base. So we've got, we've our firm has had a real challenge in getting, um, finding auditors that will even uh, bid to do the work, uh, to do an audit for some of our smaller clients. What I'm seeing is it tends to be organizations with budgets less than 2 million that mm -hmm. are really facing the brunt of this. Um, if you're an organization with a budget above 2 million, you can relatively easily find an audit firm that will mm -hmm. that will take take you on. Um, you may be or paying price. fees, right? Yeah. You may be paying fees that are quite a bit higher than what you're used to. So, you know, back in the day, we were able to find smaller firms that are willing to do audits. You know, for you know, for an organization that's got a two to four million dollar budget, maybe maybe that can be done for under twenty thousand dollars a year. Not anymore. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. very frankly, it's becoming more and more unusual that you can get an audit for less than twenty k. Mm -hmm. So just reset your expectations. You're going to have to budget more for your accounting services across the board. You know whether that's your your bookkeepers, your your um, your um, controller, your account, your CFO, whatever, but also your um, your audit. So that's that's just the way it is. But if you're in a smaller nonprofit, if you're below that two million dollar budget, and you you know I, I've got several clients that are like that. That they're like we we accept that we're going to have to pay more. We just can't find an auditor that's even willing to respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, I don't know that I've figured it out completely, but what I started doing is um, identifying, going going for those real small um, audit um, firms. So back, you know, we used to try to target, we, we've got a lot of, especially in St. Louis, a lot of um, audit firms that we work with very closely on. We share a lot mm -hmm. of clients. We recommend work uh, to them often. Um, mm -hmm. They've got a good reputation in our community. They, you know, they're not they're not a big four accounting firm, but they, they're typically more of those mid mid tier accounting firms that do, um, you know, that have somewhat of a national presence and and have a great reputation. We're starting to um, to look at 
even smaller audit firms, some even like sole proprietor, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of CPAs that just do um, audits on the side. They're licensed; they can do an audit. It's totally legal, but their 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 firm is not doesn't have much of a reputation. They're not well known. They're very mm-hmm. small. Those are the firms that we're finding better success in getting um, in getting bids or getting getting um, getting folks that are willing to do these audits. So you may have to accept that, and your board may have to accept that you're not able to get a firm that has the same reputation or clout that you maybe have had in the past, uh, but you can still find these smaller firms that are willing to do the audit. They still do solid work. Mm-hmm. They maybe don't have the same experience or the same large teams with lots of institutional knowledge, but they can support you. Um, the other thing I'm finding, um, back in the day, it was more common if a nonprofit was working with an audit firm that they weren't happy with, or they, they increased fees by a little bit, they just say, screw it, we're going to go out for bid, we're going to find another firm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in the day, we all thought of audit firms as sort of commodities. Like mm-hmm. if we don't, we're not happy with what we're getting. Let's just find another firm. We can fire this firm. We can get a new one pretty easily. I would proceed more cautiously these days with those sorts of decisions. Um, I understand it's frustrating if you have an audit partner that's not quite getting you what you need or is not quite as responsive or fast or whatever uh, as you're used to. Or if you have an audit firm that's increasing your fees, everybody's experiencing that. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, and it's ne- never hurts to go out for bid for, for to see what what's out there to see what other uh, quotes you're going to get. But again, reset those expectations. A lot of our clients are finding, yeah, we're not totally satisfied with the audit firm we're working with, but we know the alternative is we're going to have to pay twice as much for our audit if we go with another firm, or we're going to have a really hard time even finding an audit mm-hmm. firm that's willing to do this mm-hmm. work. And so sometimes it's like you go with what you know. And you try to continue to to improve that relationship. Try to work with your current firm and and uh, um, improve their timeliness or whatever whatever your concern or your complaint might be. But recognize that you know uh, it's going to be hard to find another firm that's that's willing to do the work that you need them to do. Right, right. And let's just drop a few little truth bombs for, you know, why these firms, let's be honest, we know um, a lot of them. I work in public accounting myself. I, after working in the nonprofit auditing space, that's how I decided to commit my career to helping um, these nonprofits be better prepared for these audits uh, because they are quite challenging. And, you know, I've had conversations with several audit partners, and I'll tell you kind of their rhyme or reason for deciding to cut ties. Uh, it's not just they increase your fees. In some cases, Tim, as you had mentioned, that, um, you know, sometimes they just flat out say, we can't do your audit this year. And I would say some of the top reasons for that is lack of responsiveness from the client. If they say, I need a list of these 20 things, and it takes them, you know, what they thought they could have it all done by this date, and they could knock the audit out in a month. And we've seen situations where auditors are asking clients for information for eight months or more. Yeah, that's dragging on this work that distracts them from being able to work on the other clients um, and burns out their team. It's frustrating for the team members that want to move on to something else. uh, And it takes them a lot more time, which means it's much more costly for them to do that. And so uh, we try to be really, really hyper organized and have everything ready to go for our audit firms that we work with on day one when we agree to it. And so um, and typically they'll ask a string of questions and then they'll ask for a few more things. And if you're not hyper responsive, um, then they're going to they're going to take note of that mentally. Right. Or if your quality of your accounting is just historically very messy, they can't get in and do the auditing work. Uh, 
you know, and they have to do a bunch of cleanup. It's kind of like you kind of use an analogy of, you know, you hire somebody to come in and clean your house and you expect them to mop your floors and clean your hard surfaces or whatever, but you just have your stuff everywhere. They can't even turn the vacuum on because your floors littered with a bunch of stuff. That's the reality of a uh, nonprofit accounting for especially organizations like the one I was saying, where you've had, you know, five CFOs in like 10 years, probably kind of a mess. And so yeah. these auditors know who these clients are. Yeah. I mean, it's like clean up your floor. If you want me to vacuum, right. what do you want? So, right. Um, you know, these audit firms, it's like, they really love the mission. They love the people. But at the end of the day, if it's going to prevent them from being efficient at their work, it's just, you know, they've got a wait list out the door and around the block with firms that I'm sorry, with other nonprofits that are looking for a cost effective audit partner. Um, so why not work with the ones that are the most efficient, right? And so, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's the scenario. And, um, in other words, being, you want to do your part to be a good partner for your audit firm. I mean, you know, you have to, it, yeah. these relationships are a two way street. You, you need to make sure that you're ready for these audits. You're providing the information timely. You're, you know, asking the questions you need to ask and getting them the information they need to get. And if you're not doing that, you're going to be on the top of the list to when they have to drop clients because of staffing issues, you're going to be on the top of the list. Um, well, and it used to be, Tim, you know, we'd send an RFP out and the firm is like, okay, let's see how big of a budget they are. Okay, that's worth, right. you know, kind of our time investment. Now they're taking a closer look. If you have significant accounting issues, like you're a going concern or um, you've had a lot of internal control issues in the past or you've switched auditors every other year or something to that effect, it's like, you know what, it's, we, w- we want to go for the the more simpler um, get, yeah. get in and get out arrangements. Um so if you fall into the, that camp, I mean, really ask yourself, um, how can you kind of get your house in order so that you can be a better partner within that relationship? Otherwise, even if you do find a, an accounting firm, you have to expect, you know, them to come in and charge you exponentially more. I, I've worked with a client one time, I think they're quoted um, engagement letter fees. So the actual cost of the audit and the tax return was something like $40,000. And this firm is charged somewhere between 70 and over 100 grand for the same audit. It was originally 40000 because the house was not in order. And so um, if you are lucky enough to get an audit and your house is not in order uh, and you get the, all those extra billings, uh, be rest assured that the firm is going to come back next year and say, you know, it's not just, you know, a 5% increase, a nice nominal increase. It's you're going in at 20, 30% and pay it or go find someone else. I hate to sound so direct. I'm just saying what they're all thinking and what they're saying, you know, behind the scenes, but that's just the reality. And so if you're having a really hard time keeping a firm or you've recently been disengaged from a firm um, or they've increased your fees exponentially uh, or pretty significantly, it it might be something a little bit more um, to the story than than maybe they're trying to be um, friendly and preserve that relationship. But um, anyway, I'll just tell the things that everyone else is unwilling to say maybe but yeah that's that's a big challenge and, and we're faced with that as well um even on good terms uh i like to think our audits are very very clean and we're ready to go we have a great um um relationship with our firms but they can only take on so many of our clients so if you all know a good audit firm uh send me a message <laughs> <laughs> okay so we are um running out of time for those of you that have stuck with us this long thank you so much uh we're going to try to do this on a quarterly basis and just share with you all the things that we're learning all of the hot issues kind of for more real time um, as they're coming down and maybe some of the lessons learned that we've uh, borrowed from some of our um, clients or for some of our colleagues. So thank you all for joining us again. Do me a favor. If you found any of this information helpful, leave us a review wherever you're listening, whether it's on a streaming and you're listening to audio, if you're watching us on YouTube, 
leave us a review because if you do that, that allows other nonprofit leaders to be able to find our content. And of course, skip on over to YouTube if you're not already there, subscribe to our channel again to make it uh, easier for everybody to uh, follow and find our content. Thank you all again, and we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks all. That's all we have for you today. Once again, I'm Tasha Anderson with the Charity CFO, and this is A Modern Nonprofit Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to A Modern Nonprofit Podcast on all major streaming platforms so you will stay notified for when the latest episode drops, which will help you stay in the know about anything nonprofit related. Also, join our community on Facebook by searching for A Modern Nonprofit Podcast and follow us on all of our social media accounts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.